0: Hello again, everyone. I remain Pastor Brendan. It has not changed in the intervening period. Um, And I'm delighted to be bringing the message to you tonight. Uh, So I'm going to pray, and then we'll jump right into it. Father God, thank you for your word. And we thank you that you have a, a plan for each of us and a plan for each church that you have placed on this earth, Lord. We pray that you open the word to our hearts tonight and open up our hearts to what you have to say in your word. And we ask this in the name of your son, Jesus Christ. Amen. So, what are you doing here? Yeah, that's right, yep. That's fair. Well, that's a good answer for a start, listening to me. But I mean, for a start, definitely not cosmically. I don't mean a sort of a why are you here on earth sense. That's a good question as well. But I mean, why are you here in this church? And guys, don't be clever. I mean, your home church, you know. Even if you're visiting with us and we're delighted to have you, interpolate for me, okay? Don't make this difficult. So, why do you go to your church? What else could you be doing on a Sunday night? Could you be seeing a movie? You could be curled up with your loved one, perhaps studying the Bible in the comfort of your own home rather than here, or reading, or talking, or sleeping, or going to a different church. One where the preaching is more orthodox, or more emotive, or interactive, or shorter, or longer, and then they beam the sermon notes directly to your phone or one where there is a bigger pool of young singles to swim with if you're looking for a partner, or maybe one with more families to connect with if you're looking to connect your family with another, or one that's not quite so big and impersonal, not so small and sort of slapped together. I'll give you 10 seconds right now to think of one place you'd rather be. Go. Really, you only need the three. It's not a race. What are you doing here specifically? Does it matter that you are here rather than somewhere else? Rather than at another church, a bigger church, a smaller church, a more reformed, more liberal, more enticing church? And since we all know that the church is not the building, but the people that make it up, and there's this whole, when two or more of you are gathered in my name business, can one not simply do church in their own family? Kind of a house church arrangement. Surely the early churches started that way, Many of our mission churches start that way. Persecuted churches especially have to start that way. Isn't the church part of a broader universal church where everything you do, however infrequently, as long as you're performing some kind of church-like act, isn't that kind of enough? Well, it's not enough for you because you're here or you have a home church that you attend. Perhaps it's the teaching At this church that you find particularly helpful or maybe this is your family church it's been good to you for a long time and you just kind of like it but for the next couple of weeks we're talking kind of about uh, church life essentials about basics of being a Christian and and particularly for the next two weeks we're talking about church membership and I want to focus not specifically on being a voting member but on what it means to be part of a church in a meaningful way what that means what do you have a right to expect from a church to which you are a member, and what does it have a right to expect from you? And over the next months we'll be talking about worship and stewardship and other aspects of church life. But right now, what is it to be a member of a church? And I want to come at it from this angle. What do people get out of coming to church that fulfills some kind of need? Some of these will apply to you. Some will not. And once we've looked at those, we can ask, which of those would you have to lose before you stopped being a member of this church and began to look for another which did fulfill that need because if you are coming to church for the music and the music changes would it be pretty fair to say that you might leave for another church if that's so that's your prerequisite for being a member of that church and likewise for any other feature is that fair all right so is it the music is the worship style why you come to church is it Worship style is often a contentious topic sometimes. Is it this traditional blend with contemporary offerings of music that you've come here for? And if church decided against uh, all of its own tradition to change exclusively to the use of Gregorian chanting, or perhaps indecipherable dubstep as a method of worship, would that be enough for you to revoke your membership and go somewhere else? Is it the preaching, maybe? Do you feel particularly fed on the word of God here? If one of or all of your favorite preachers left or dramatically changed their style to something you didn't like and it made it hard for you to pay attention, would that be the last straw for you? Would you then be able to leave the church with a good conscience? Is it the people here? Is it everyone you know happens to attend here, family and friends? And if certain people left, then you would be strongly enticed to go with them. Is it the programs? Are you part of a, a particular ministry or um, a set of ministries, youth, men's, boys' brigade, women, something like that, which you particularly enjoy here and leaving? Well, that would cause you pain. Is that what is really anchoring your membership in this place? Is it the sense of the presence of God? Do you feel particularly spiritually filled here? And for you, that sensation is the definition of church. And without that, You would feel you would be wasting your time here. Or is it the feeling of home? The familiarity? The combination of some of the above? Is it something like that? Things change, but by degrees, and would a radical change to some or all of these things send you running for another church with a more familiar feel? What is it that's keeping you here? Now you might have another idea of church or what constitutes a church, but... I expect most people value at least some of those things as sort of a non-negotiable pact with what makes up a church that they would consider themselves a part of. Jesus didn't give us a flat-out definition of what a church was meant to look like, and he only used the, church, the, uh, the term church very rarely in Scripture, because the church didn't exist until he was risen, really. But one of those occasions is in our passage today, and, well, let's see we can distract from Jesus' words here in Matthew 16, which would be relevant to our discussion this is an exchange that takes place between the disciples and Jesus Christ and Caesarea Philippi. Caesarea Philippi is a town built against uh, the side of a stone cliff. And so when Jesus begins speaking of the rock upon which he would build his church, he's got a pretty strong visual referent for the disciples to look at and be inspired. And Jesus asks his disciples two questions, and he gets the right answers, which is pretty amazing for the Gospels, if you've read and seen what the disciples are likely to respond when they're challenged. But they're in verses 13 and 14 to start with. When Jesus came to the region of Caesarea Philippi, he asked his disciples, Who do you people, or who do people say the Son of Man is? They replied, Some say John the Baptist, others say Elijah, and still others Jeremiah or one of the prophets. Now, John the Baptist wasn't a miracle worker as far as we know, but he was a known figure and he conducted himself in the style of the prophet Elijah. He wore the same things and behaved in a similar manner. He's the kind of person you might expect a miraculous ministry from. Thus, some people confused him with Jesus, whom John baptized, and confused John himself with Elijah, or perhaps correctly identified him as Elijah, because the prophecy they were waiting on in Malachi 4 says this. See, I will send send the prophet Elijah to you before the great and dreadful day of the Lord comes. He will turn the hearts of the parents to their children, and the hearts of the children to their parents, or else I will come and strike the land with total destruction. John was the Elijah they were waiting for. But you can forgive them a little bit here for jumbling together John and Jesus and Elijah and not quite knowing what was going on. The crowds tended to be at a bit of an arm's distance from Christ at this point. Jeremiah is a little different, but there's a lot of parallels between Jesus and Jeremiah, both wept over Jerusalem's impending destruction and prophesied that destruction both were innocent sufferers but this is really a list of names of people that are well common mistakes because who Jesus is is really right in front of them it's something they should be able to grasp this list is for comparative purposes the people at a distance from Christ are tripping over themselves trying to figure out which divine figure he is but his disciples are able to realize that he is in fact the divine himself verse 15 but what about you he asked who do you say i am verse 16 simon peter answers you are the messiah the son of the living god 100 points for peter jesus commends this as a godly insight into the character of the son in verse 17 jesus replied blessed are you simon son of jonah for this was not revealed to you by flesh and blood but by my father in heaven And then comes the very crunchy part of this passage, and the one that bears a kind of a high-resolution focus, verses 18 and 19. And I tell you that you are Peter, and on this rock I will build my church, and the gates of Hades will not overcome it. I will give you the keys of the kingdom of heaven. Whatever you bind on earth will be bound in heaven, and whatever you loose on earth will be loosed in heaven. And wars have been fought, and a great deal of blood spilled over how to read these verses. This is a primary source of conflict between the Catholic Church and the Orthodox Churches, particularly. It's the reason that people who aren't Catholic care that there is a Pope and the reason that those who are Catholic care that people sometimes will reject that Pope. That requires us to briefly examine and, I think, excitingly examine the Greek text, but I won't drag you through it terribly long. It's fairly simple, actually. Here's the deal. The Greek word for rock used here for the name given to Peter is Petros like petrify and Petros is the name that Jesus gives here to Simon now called Petros Peter he says I say that you are a rock and henceforth people call him Simon Peter, Simon the rock that's pretty good, pretty good appellation, he's in good company, Dwayne the Rock Johnson Chris Rock, Kid Rock, eh, kinda going downhill anyway being the rock that's a good thing then Jesus says, upon this rock I will build my church. Now that word for the second round of rock is not Petros, but Petra. Petra means a big, a foundational rock like the one Caesarea Philippi is built into. Is this difference important? Maybe. Greek is one of those languages where the words have the gender packed right into them. Everything, Just about everything is male or female in the way it's read. And for Greek, when you're talking about rocks, you have Petra and Petros. And it's kind of like Petra, the female word, is like the big mother rock. And the Petros is the little baby boy rock. That's the kind of imagery of this. Why am I telling you all of this? Well, it's possible you can read this passage to say Jesus calls Peter the rock. And he's building the church upon that rock. He's building his church upon peter he's making him the leader of the church with great authority and peter will pass that leadership down to the next guy who will also have great authority that's a sort of a kingship that's called apostolic succession that's the catholic reading of this verse or you can go to the other extreme at the end that jesus uses the different words to completely differentiate the ideas peter you are this little tiny stone but upon this rock I build my church upon myself I build the church in which case anyone who confesses Christ as their Savior is in the church regardless of whether or not they have a church family connection of any kind that's the other very extreme reading of this and that's a pretty big difference and a lot of people like I said have bled and died for that one and there's a whole lot of middle ground being excluded there right now but I guess the question here is does this mean that Peter's actions as one of the formative leaders of the early church are being preemptively honored by Christ in this passage. Is this Jesus saying that Peter himself, personally, will be the rock of the church? Did he mean that it's people who are like Peter, who answer correctly that Jesus is Messiah, who recognize him as the savior, who are to be the foundation of the church? Did Jesus really mean Petra, the big rock, when he's talking to Peter, Petros, the small rock, but he changed the word when he gave him the name because that would be a girl's name. And that would be silly. You won't find a clear answer here in the passage, but most, I think the most sensible reading that I find in this passage, is this. in the greater context of the Bible, is that Peter was the first in this tradition of claiming Jesus as Savior, the first to lay down this template of what it means to be part of the church, its stone foundation. The church is built out of just such people, who were at first weak people and Self-righteous blowhards who will run when confronted with real challenge, but the Holy Spirit works in them and builds them into genuinely godly people, citizens of the earthly face of the kingdom of God. The body of God's people is built not from uh, a genetically linked group of people with the same blood or from those who qualify by righteousness, by trying hard enough and succeeding, but by those who recognize Jesus as their savior. That's the point. And the second half of that verse says that the gates of Hades will not prevail against Jesus' church. This is sometimes translated the gates of hell rather than the gates of Hades. I think that's a little misleading. Jesus uses another word when he's talking about hell, hell, like final destination of the evil hell. Hades refers to the place of the dead. It's the grave. This is saying that, not saying that all the infernal powers and Devils that will come running out of the gates of hell won't be able to breach the church. That's a good sentiment, but that's not what this is saying. This is Jesus promising that death will not divide his people. These metaphorical gates between the living and the dead cannot hold back believers and cannot hold them certainly from their Messiah. They, like their Savior, will rise again. So what are these keys to the kingdom that then... Peter is given, as a representative of the coming church. This is about authority within the church. The talk of heaven and earth here is in keeping with the biblical theme of God's kingdom coming to earth. It's this idea of a dwelling place for God and the dwelling place of man overlapping, finally, as they were meant to ever since they were divided at the Garden of Eden. Scripture is populated all around with these attempts for people to get back to that state of having a place where heaven and earth collide, where God can meet with man. Sometimes it's done God's way. It's done right. The temple, when it's done right, is a place where God meets with man. It's a temporary picture of what's to come. But that's what it is. The mountains upon which Moses and Elijah and Jesus have divine encounters are an echo of this. They're getting as close to heaven as they can, and heaven comes down to them. Sometimes it's done presumptuously and it's done wrong and God destroys the overlap when that happens. He closes the garden. He brings destroyers to the temple. But the real overlap of heaven and earth is focused in Jesus himself, who is God and man. That's why so many churches have a steeple with a cross. It's the highest place they can fix it to put this intersection of God and man, of heaven and earth. And the highest place... To which mere humans can ascend is to the foot of the cross, which is the lowest place to which God has ever come. So Jesus says, I give you the keys to the kingdom of heaven, the domain of God and man on earth. And as you operate in it, as earthly beings, you will be doing so with a heavenly authority and a power. He tells his disciples not to tell anyone that he is Messiah because his work as Savior has not yet been completed until he's been crucified. Risen. Once that's done, Jesus has done all the work to reconcile God and man, done that at one location and point in history, one time. And with Christ's resurrection comes the Great Commission to bring the good news to the world, to reconcile God to man spiritually by surrendering to that same cross. That's the heart of the church. An assembly of God's people. Meeting with God, deepening their relationship with God, and drawing new believers into that gathering which constitutes the kingdom of God. It's the church, God's people, which is the only thing that the gates of Hades will not prevail against. Everything else will go away someday. Therefore, it's not a stretch to say that the most significant things that you can do in your life involve in some way meaningfully contributing to God's church that's not a small claim if a few times in your life you get up at 7 a.m. on a saturday and participate in a church working bee or a cleaning crew or some similarly seemingly small act of ministry if you do that a few times if you do that one time you'll be performing a service to your brothers and sisters in christ and god himself which will be valued and honored in a million years arcing off into eternity in the kingdom of god But if you discover the cure for cancer, which changes this world, and henceforth everyone lives commonly to the age of 120, you will perform a service which has only delayed the inevitable death of man, and which will become irrelevant and forgotten when the world passes away. All the riches and rewards promised in eternity are an eternal reflection of the good done in the kingdom here and now. What else could they be? What do you picture when you think of the heavenly reward? A house made of gold? Unlimited material things? The reward that we get is an improved richness in our relationship as brothers and sisters in Christ and an improved relationship with God. The things that you do which matter eternally are done in or for God's people and by that God himself. So might I suggest that if you are really just sticking around because you're getting one thing or another out of the church music or teaching or anything else you are not getting your kingdom's worth. Perhaps that's because you're not giving your kingdom's worth. A church that believes in the saving power of the resurrected son of god is an expression of the kingdom of god it's a it's a manifestation of the church God's people on earth bringing heaven with them and there are very few features of a church's structure or style or makeup that can't be negotiated to alternative forms over time or frozen for decades without change as tradition might dictate but they cannot be what being a member of the church is about extreme attachment to some feature of the church or or a fixated repulsion of a feature of the church. So much that one might leave a church to get away from it or go specifically to a church to find it. These are signs that your relationship to the church might not be bound up in the love of God's people and mutual devotion to the Savior as it should be. That love is fostered through joining in ministries, through founding them, through engaging with people of the church, through helping your brothers and sisters in your church. Through inviting new people in to become brothers and sisters in that church, through participating in the life of the church. It comes from taking pride in what the church has done right and responsibility for what it has done wrong, and as much as possible seeking to vanish the latter in the growing shadow of the former. It comes from working and sometimes with affection fighting against the imperfections of the church to make its parts better. And it comes from accepting that sometimes the teaching or the music or anything else might be flawed beyond your ability to fix it. And you may just have to accept it as it is. The church is built on love. The love of God. Love that is imperishable to death. And the gates of Hades will not prevail against it. And you are only able to love that which you pour yourself into. We love God absolutely because we give our whole selves to him when we repent and become his children. We love our families because like it or not, we are locked in with them with a big chunk of our life. These strange people who seem like they're from different worlds from us, but who share our blood. And learning to love one another doesn't just make that bearable, it makes it wonderful. Sin forces us to either love God or perish. Blood forces us to either love our family or risk never really knowing that bone-deep peace and sense of home. But there is nothing that will force you to love a particular church. This is really the only church I've ever known myself. I have loved it and it has loved me. And I am sometimes overwhelmed by the opportunity I have to love it back by serving here. I've never shopped around for one that suited me better. Probably didn't know that that was an option, but I don't really think it is an option. I went to Boys' Brigade here, maybe five years in that activity center. Down there, it's where I learned who Jesus was and who Jesus is. I went to youth here. I volunteered for youth here. I've run youth here. Now I get to oversee youth here. After returning from Boys' Brigade Leadership Camp, I, on the same day as Captain Lowe, was baptized in this church. I learned the apologetics and the depth of faith I needed to keep my spirit alive through high school in this church. And alive through several botched runs at adulthood. Until God was able to make something worth keeping out of my failures. And when that time came, this church encouraged and supported and prayed me through my studies to preach the word of God. And when that was done, I was immediately called into full-time ministry at this church. And six days from now, I will get married in this church. (laughs) So you can believe me when I say that the idea of leaving this church for any reason wounds me. The statistical unlikelihood that I will spend my entire life serving in this church And not to be called to some other place eventually is something I try not to think about. To be a member of the church, to be a part of a church, you must love it. And to love it, you must pour yourself into it such that the idea of leaving it for any reason other than the brute facts of life, and even for them, should be painful. And if you love this church or your home church, Consider pouring yourself into it in a new way. Pray that God might put on your heart the best way to spend your time, and when He prompts you to act, you act. And if you are so flat for time that you can't imagine pouring yourself into this church or your home church in a new way, then please reach out and let us know so that we can pour back into you. That's what we're for. Our care ministry, our home groups, our pastors, all our individual members of this church. Their hearts are geared towards loving those who are here. And particularly loving you when your life is constricting your ability to do the work of God. Don't suffer alone. But, if you don't think of your church as your church, into which you are genuinely invested, and the idea of leaving it does not break your heart then see me or another pastor after the service tell us what you want to do or if you don't know what to do just say that how to love or serve or help your community more and if your relationship with your church does not stir your soul even so minimally that you cannot even want to serve it Then please, I beg you, leave this church and find one that you can lift yourself to serve. Because you are starving towards a spiritual death. And in the kingdom built on the love of God and one another, that is the greatest tragedy that I can imagine. Let's pray. Father God, You are amazing, and we thank you for the sacrifice of your son Jesus on the cross and his resurrection to the place of eternal king. We thank you that we, who don't deserve it, are made worthy by that sacrifice to live in that kingdom forever. Help us to better think of ourselves as members of your church, to become members of the church, to become citizens of your kingdom, to become part of your people. And help us to love one another in light of that truth. Help us to forgive and reconcile where a brother or sister might have hurt us. Help us to confess and overcome spiritual laziness and bad habits. Convict us of those things that we have not done but should have done. And in all these things, Mm -hmm. Lord, mend and bolster our church towards growth and health as the place in our lives where the people of God gather to meet with the one who loves them enough to keep them forever. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.